Good morning, church. Before we dig into God's word, let's let's pray together. Father, what a distinct honor and privilege to gather as your people. Your holy people, your people called out by your name. We're here, Lord, not to impress anybody or to fulfill an obligation. We're here to worship you, to honor you. And we thank you that you promised to gather among us. Where two or three are gathered in your name, you said you are present among us. So, Lord, we honor you today. And we ask for your presence. We ask for your spirit to open our hearts to your holy word. Lord, I I pray for your help. You know how weak I feel. But that's good because your strength is made perfect in our weakness. We pray, Lord, for this word and for our response as well as for Ben Rodell from this church who is this, who is this morning preaching your word at the Correctional Center. We ask that you would anoint him as well. And we pray that you would open the hearts of many to hear, to, to respond to your word, to repent and to exercise faith toward God toward salvation. Oh God, thank you for the promise you make. You're eager to save. And this morning, I pray that you would do that, both in that place and in this, for your glory. In Christ's name, amen. Amen. Open your Bibles with me, if you would, to Mark chapter 6. It has already been a wonderful morning, has it not, church? God's presence is so wonderfully near to us in these times as we gather and and the joy of singing together and hearing God's word, the joy of praying for Brad and Tammy, hearing from David. Uh, we Our cups are full and this morning I pray that they would overflow. As we read from this section of scripture, Mark chapter 6, we're going to read verses 45 to 56. And I want you to pretend that I can read like my friend Kevin. Uh, so, so I have an ordinary accent. I want you to, pr- to just pretend that I have an extraordinary accent and so that you can hear this with new ears today. Mark, ch- I know I am. It's true, but you can, Shane. Mark chapter 6, let's begin reading in verse 45. Immediately he, Jesus, made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side, to Bethsaida, while he dismissed the crowd. And after he had taken leave of them, he went up on the mountain to pray. And when evening came, the boat was out on the sea, and he was alone on the land. And he saw that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them, walking on the sea. He meant to pass by them, but when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost and cried out, for they all saw him and were terrified. 
But immediately he spoke to them and said, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. And he got into the boat with them, and the wind ceased, and they were utterly astounded, for they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. When they crossed over, they came to the land of Gennesaret and moored to the shore. And when they got out of the boat, the people immediately recognized him and ran about the whole region and began to bring the sick people on their beds to wherever they heard he was. And wherever he came, in villages, cities, or countryside, they laid the sick in the marketplaces and implored him that they might touch even the fringe of his garment. And as many as touched it, were made well. Early Christian artists painted the pictures of the church as the twelve in a boat on a storm-tossed sea. They wanted to convey the reality of the church living in a world buffeted by winds of adversity. The church, as in a boat, needing to be rescued by the Savior. This was so deeply in the consciousness of the early church that that they called the, the main room that they met in, what we call sometimes the sanctuary, they called it the nave, which is a, the Latin word for ship. To remind themselves that as a people that they were always in need of the Savior's rescue, that they would always be buffeted by winds of adversity so long as they were in this world, and they would always need the rescue of the Savior. It was a reminder not only of their need for a Savior, but of the Savior's eagerness to provide. This morning, we're going to see three pictures, three, three very distinct paintings that Mark gives us that, like this painting I referred to earlier, can transform the way we live. It's meant to affect us, to change us, to, to motivate us, to comfort us in our time of need. And each of these paintings conveys this message that genuine faith produces confident expectation of God's power. Genuine faith produces confident expectation of God's power. Now the section of scripture we just read was um, immediately followed Jesus feeding 5,000 men plus women and children. Some Fifteen to 20,000 people being fed with five loaves and two fish. Food multiplied in the hand of the Savior, distributed to these people as a, as a sign that this one, this one is God himself. This one is divine. This one feeds his people just as God fed 
the people of Israel in the wilderness with manna. This one is the good shepherd who leads his people into green pastures. And now Jesus gets makes his disciples get into a boat immediately. It seems that he had to urge them. He had to kind of push them away. And that's, that's for a reason. John, John lets us know in his gospel that Jesus perceived that they were about to come, the people that he had fed were about to come and take him by force to make him king. And Jesus knew that his disciples would be only too happy to sign on to that agenda. His disciples would be right there encouraging them. He didn't want a bit them to be corrupted by that. So, so he got them into a boat. He sent them away. He said, I'll see you on the way. I'll see you on the other side. And then Jesus dismissed the crowd. And what a lesson of leadership that would be. And went up to the mountain to pray. And there we see the first picture. The first painting was one that 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 will serve us well if we if this can be etched into our hearts. We see Jesus on the mountain in prayer. And that's significant because Mark only records Jesus pulling away for an extended time of prayer three times. Jesus certainly prayed often, but there are three distinct times that Mark records Jesus pulling aside for extended prayer. The first was in the first chapter at the beginning of the gospel when his ministry was being defined. The people were pressing in on him. The disciples were saying, we, we need to keep this healing ministry going. People were seeking to define for Jesus what he was to do, and Jesus as he pulled away to pray, said to his disciples, let's go to other cities, other villages to, to preach, for that's why I came. It was a critical time, a time of pressure. This is another one of those times after feeding the 5,000, the pressure upon Jesus to, to apprehend a different agenda, to be king. But that's not why he came. And so he pulled aside to pray, to seek his father. And then lastly, in chapter 14 in Gethsemane, just before he goes to the cross, as, as the forces of evil are warring over him, and he cries out to God, if it's possible, let this, let this pass from me, but not my will, but yours be done. And he submits himself to the will of the father. So here we see him praying on the mountaintop. It's a very significant prayer. It's one that that needs to be etched into our hearts because Jesus is praying not just for himself, not just for the crowds upon which he certainly had compassion, but he's praying for his disciples. He's watching over them. We see that in verse 47. When evening came, the boat was out to the sea. And he was alone on the land, and he saw that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. Jesus was praying for his church, for his people, for these disciples. 
They are in a place of need. Hours have passed since Jesus sent them out. And they have been rowing against the wind. The sails are down because they're rowing into the wind. Sails would only hinder that. So they are having to row and they're rowing hard. John's gospel tells us that they've rowed about three and a half miles. So they're in the middle of the lake after some eight hours of rowing. Matthew's gospel adds that they are a long way from land, beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them. There was a strong headwind that was holding them back. And you can only imagine after eight hours of rowing how weary these men must have been, how tired, how exhausted. And if that was you or I, I think we would start asking, how did we get in this place? What what are we doing here? And of course, the answer is that they got there by obeying Jesus. He sent them into the wind. And being omniscient, he knew the wind was going to come. Brothers and sisters, there's a lesson here for us. How often in the midst of adversity do we assume that we must be out of the will of God because if we were in the will of God, surely we wouldn't be suffering, right? We wouldn't be hurting. I mean, this wind must prove that, I mean, if God, God loves me and he's, he's sovereign, he wouldn't put me in a place where I have to exert myself. I'm exhausted. I'm tired. I'm discouraged. God wouldn't do that to me, Right? God wouldn't put me in a tough place. Oh, but he would. Oh, he absolutely would. In fact, the fact that we're in a tough place might be more an indication that we are in the will of God. See, Jesus sent them into this hard place to teach them to trust, to test and perfect their faith. Why do you think he sends us into tough places? Maybe this morning there's some adversity in your life and you don't like it. Maybe you've been arguing with God. God, why why is this? I I am your son. Certainly I deserve a joy-filled, easy life. What's this adversity? It must be the devil. It must be that I'm going to rebuke the devil because if I'm in the will of God, I'm going to have an easy life. Well, this picture, this picture tells us something. In fact, it tells us several things that, that we very deeply need to embrace, brothers and sisters. The first thing it tells us is that Jesus is praying for us. That we are never out of his sight that he is able to see and to pray. And in fact, when we feel the furthest from him, he is the nearest. They never left his sight. Now, we don't know if that's natural sight or spiritual sight, exactly how Jesus saw them across the lake. But Jesus saw them. He watched them. He saw that they were making headway painfully. 
So the disciples felt cut off from Jesus. The disciples felt removed from Jesus. Why isn't he here? At least, if last time, at least he was here asleep, but at least he was here. And remember how he woke up and, and, and we said, don't you care? And he stood up and he rebuked the wind and it stopped. Gosh, I wish he were here now. Well, this is a different lesson. And here's what the disciples needed to know. The fact that he wasn't in the boat didn't mean that they were out of his sight. He never lost sight of them. In fact, in the middle of their storm, they were special objects of his omniscient, compassionate care. And brothers and sisters, this ought to be of great comfort to us. For when you are experiencing difficulty, you are never out of his sight. You are experiencing, whether you feel like it or not, his omniscient, compassionate care. Jesus' focus was upon those who were undergoing difficulty on account of their obedience to him. We also see that Jesus is willing to allow us to experience difficulty for a period of time. There is a purpose behind the trial, and the very nature of trial is this, that that it takes us to the end of ourselves. Now, let's be honest, none of us like being at the end of ourselves. None of us like being in a place where we we feel like, God, I, I can't do this anymore. But it's at that place where we feel the most helpless that our trust, our faith is perfected. It's tested and it's proven in times of difficulty. Let's be honest. As long as we can manage it ourselves, we really don't need him. Oh, we say we do. Sure. But we really don't. As long as there's, there's a big bank account, We can say we're trusting God for the money, but are we really? But when we don't have anything left, and God says give anyway, that's when we're tested. As long as we're healthy, we can believe God for good health, but but when things start breaking down, that's when we discover what's in our hearts And what we see here is that Jesus allowed his disciples to go a very long time. We know that because he he went to them in the fourth watch of the night. Now, let's suppose he pushed them off around six or seven o'clock in the evening, right after dinner. The fourth watch of the night begins at 3 a.m., So if you're doing your math, they've been out there at least eight hours rowing hard against the wind. I don't know if you've ever rowed a boat against the wind, but it takes me, oh, maybe three or four minutes to be exhausted. They've been out there eight hours. No matter how many shifts you have with 12 people, you've got 12 weary, discouraged men after eight hours. He waited eight hours. For eight hours he prayed for them and watched over them. 
For eight hours, he asked the Father to empower them and to strengthen them. Hebrews speaks of this wonderful provision when he says, Therefore he is able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. Let me ask you a question. Do you realize that Jesus is always living to intercede for you? That he's praying for you? J.C. Ryle helps us. He says these are thoughts of comfort for all true believers. Wherever they may be or whatever their circumstances, the Lord Jesus sees them. Listen to these words. The same eye which saw the disciples tossed on the lake is ever looking at us. The same eye that saw the disciples tossed on the lake is ever looking at you. We are never beyond the reach of his care. Our way is never hidden from him. He knows the path we take and is still able to help. He may not come to our aid at the time we like best, but he will never allow us utterly to fail. He who walked upon the water never changes. He will always come at the right time to uphold his people. Though he tarry, let us wait patiently. Jesus sees us and will not forsake us. He waited until the fourth watch of the night. He waited until their strength was depleted and that they were weary before he came. And the question I have for you is, where are you this morning experiencing strong headwind in your life? What circumstances cause you to feel alone? Maybe you're a student and you, you're having to stand alone against peer pressure to, do, to compromise in ways that you know would dishonor God. Maybe you're a parent and you've got a little one and in the fourth watch of the night, (laughs) you're awake. And you've been awake a lot during the night and it's been a very long day the day before. And that little one doesn't want to stop crying. And you're at the end of yourself. Or maybe you've got a child who's sick And it's a chronic sickness and it weighs on you. Maybe you're a wife in a hopeless marriage or at least it seems to you to be hopeless. Or maybe you have a health, a chronic health problem that just wears you down. That back pain never goes away. And you're wondering, 
does God see? Does God care? And Mark paints this picture of Christ praying and says to you, genuine faith will produce a confident expectation of God's power. Don't stop rowing. Don't give up. He may not come to our aid at the time we like best, but he will never allow us to fail. Brothers and sisters, we have great hope because genuine faith produces confident expectation of God's delivering power. The first picture is of Christ praying for you and over you. The second picture, the second picture is of the Savior coming to rescue his people. About the fourth watch of the night, verse 48, he came to them walking on the sea. How great is that? The very waves that frightened the disciples were stair steps to bring the Lord to his people. And then there's a phrase that's somewhat odd. He meant to pass by them. What could that possibly mean? Not that he was going to bypass them for the whole reason for him to walk out on the water is to to see them, to be with them, to comfort them. Well, that phrase, he meant to pass them by, perhaps best understood is so that they would see him pass by. It's it's an echo of a man named Moses who made a request to God. Remember in Exodus 33:18 Moses said, "Please show me your glory." And God answered him, I, "I will make all my goodness pass before you." Notice those words. "I will make all my goodness pass before you, and I will proclaim before you my name, but You cannot see my face, for man cannot see me and live. And the Lord said, Behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock while my glory passes by. I will put you in the cleft of the rock, and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. The same words are used in 1 Kings 19, when Elijah is in need of encouragement and God says, go and stand on the mount and behold, it says, the Lord passed by. So the, as the the Lord passed by Moses at Sinai and Elijah at Horeb, now the Lord of the Old Testament, who is Christ, passed by by his disciples, that they can see his glory and believe. He is the one who comes walking on water. Now, you don't have to be real smart to know that only God can walk on water. Peter tried it and didn't do so well. You only God can walk on water. And so when they see Jesus, they can know that he has come to rescue them. Behold our God. He comes out to rescue them. But 
the disciples see the Lord and they are, they, they're freaking out. They saw him walking and thought he was a ghost. And, and let's not be too hard on the disciples. If you've been rowing for eight hours in pitch black and somebody starts walking by you, you're probably screaming too. <laughs> That's not normal stuff even for the disciples. But Jesus had an expectation that these men should know something of his power. He had an expectation that they should know that this one who rules over creation can rule over the water. And that's, that's a very significant sign, Jesus walking on water, because water for the Jewish culture, water in Scripture, is, is a place of uncertainty and danger. That's the reason in Revelation it says at the end of the age in the New Jerusalem there will be no more sea. The reason for that, because we can be sad about that, right? We love to go to the ocean or go to a lake house and, and just rest in the peace of the water. That's not how, that's not how these guys interacted with the water. They, to them, the reality of water was the Sea of Galilee, some 700 feet below sea level, where, where gusts of wind and windstorms were famous for coming up out of nowhere and destroying ships. So even these experienced fishermen were afraid of the water. They feared the water. And for Jesus to walk on the water, he is saying, I am the God of creation. I am God. And that's what he reiterated in verse 50 when he speaks to them. And he says, take heart, it is I. Or literally, take heart, I am. The very word, the very name that he used with Moses, I am that I am. The words that Jesus used in John 8 before Abraham was, I am. So he's saying to them, I am God. Do not be afraid. They rejected Jesus at first. They weren't expecting help the way it came. And you know what? That is often our problem as well, isn't it? We we have certain ways that we're expecting God to help us. And when he doesn't, we can become discouraged. We can become full of self-pity. Somebody says, "Can can I pray for you? You're obviously hurting. No, 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 no. He helps other people. He's not going to help me. So it's a it's a prideful self pity, it's a discouragement that looks to circumstance instead of looking to him. So often when when he doesn't come the way we expect him to come, we push away the very hand that would heal us. We can believe that he'll help everybody else, but not us. Like the disciples, we can be afraid. We can reject the hope that we have. And Jesus says, don't be afraid, I am. And this picture that he gives us, this second picture, it's not just Jesus praying, but Jesus coming on the water. Jesus in his glory coming to care. Jesus in his power coming to help. And he calls us to be a people of faith. 
Because genuine faith produces confident expectation of God's power. There is a desire, a delight for us to receive his help wherever and however it comes. And Jesus was expecting that these men should have anticipated him. Look at verse 51. He got into the boat and the wind ceased. And John tells us that they immediately arrived at the other side as well. And they were utterly astounded for they did not understand about the loaves. They were surprised. They were shocked. They couldn't believe that Jesus would come like he did For they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. Jesus was expecting that they would have learned something from the last experience that would have served them here. Jesus was expecting that one trial or challenge would produce faith to prepare them for the next. And there's something important here for you and I. If these men were expected to learn from one challenge for the next, so are we. Sometimes the challenges we face, as hard as they are, are God's gift of mercy to prepare us, to teach us, to strengthen our spiritual muscles so that the next challenge will be attainable. If you want to run a marathon, you've, you've got to train. And if we're called to run a spiritual marathon, then that's only going to happen because we have training throughout our life, growing through exercising faith in difficulties, in trials. These men had seen Christ up close and personal. They walked with him. They saw him cast demons out of men and women. They saw him heal thousands. They heard him teach. And after he taught, he would pull aside with them and explain to them the meaning of the parables. They saw him feed 5,000 men plus women and children with five loaves and two fish. And that was supposed to prepare them for this. Do you see the connection? Those things were supposed to prepare them for this so that that when they were in the boat and he wasn't with them, that they would know that the Savior, who is the creator of all, was with them and was caring for them even if far away. They were supposed to know if if the good shepherd who provided food for the thousands, who made provision for the thousands, would also care for them. But they did not. They were supposed to know that in verse 45, when he called them to go to the other side, that he would provide for them to get to the other side. There's a lesson here for us that we dare not miss. When God says go to the other side, we can trust him to get us there. When he calls us to go, he'll meet us. He'll give us what we need. He'll sustain us. Brothers and sisters, Jesus is using trials in your lives to prepare you for future trials. 
hardships to prepare you for future hardships. And he expects us to learn and to develop muscles of faith so that we can have a confident expectation of God's power in wherever he takes us. And there are people here this morning that God's going to call to do things that absolutely will require that faith. In fact, I think it's fair to say that every Christian here this morning will be called to do things that will require that gift of faith. See the connection. See, as we're sending Brad and Tammy out, they, they've been faithful to go before. They've taken the small steps so that this big step, they're ready for it. What's God called you to do that's going to require a gift of faith? That's going to require a confident expectation of God's power? Jesus knows you better than you know yourself. He loves you more than you love yourself. Do you believe that? He is more compassionate than you could ever hope. He is more powerful than you could ever imagine. And he knows your needs more perfectly than you and I could ever comprehend. Brothers and sisters, this picture, this picture should fill us with great hope. It's not only Jesus praying on the mountain, but Jesus coming to us in our hour of need. In the midst of the stormy world, Jesus is in glory, interceding for us. And when the hour seems darkest, he will come. That's our hope. That's the certainty of our faith. And then lastly, well, there's a third picture here. The picture that that we dare not miss. Jesus praying on the mountain. Jesus coming in glory in the hour of darkest need. And the third picture is of the shepherd's compassion. They arrive, verse 53, at at the land of Gennesaret. It's Gentile territory. It's, It's the area where Jesus cast out the gathering demoniac, cast the demon out of the demoniac. And remember the demoniac said, I want to come with you. And Jesus says, no, no, stay here and go and tell everyone what the Lord has done for you. And now Jesus is back. He's actually back here in, in a, a natural sense because the wind has blown them off course. They were going to go to Bethsaida, but, but, but now they're in the middle of this Gentile area and, and God has the word's gotten out about Jesus. And so, so it says that they, they recognized him immediately and ran about the whole region and began to bring sick people in their beds to wherever they heard he was. This was a happening. This was a display of the Father's glory. This is a display of the compassionate shepherd. This is a picture of Jesus' compassionate love. For in these verses, we have no account of Jesus preaching, of repentance, 
or of a people interested in following him. There is no mention of forgiveness of sin or a desire to honor him as Savior. Only one thing is in mind here, Jesus meeting their desperate need. And let's understand how desperate that need really was. If if you're in this time, there is no genuine medical care, certainly as we understand it. There are no hospitals. There's no emergency care. So if you have a a son who's an epileptic, you, you have no ability to care for him. And apart from supernatural intervention, he will die. If you have a father who's ill and you're watching him wane away, you're watching him die day by day, you have no hope unless there is a supernatural manifestation of grace. And so when Jesus shows up, it's not just a matter of it would be nice to have a prayer answered. It's life or death. It's my daughter who has fever and she's dying. It's my mother who's, who, who's on her last breath. Would you please heal her, Lord? And people are bringing their their children, their relatives, their spouses, and they're bringing them out so that even if they could touch the fringe of his garment, they would be healed. Listen, this is, this is a picture of genuine faith producing confident expectation of God's power. These people, though they had no faith in Jesus' saving power, Oh, they had great faith in his healing power. They were eager. They were passionate. And Jesus graciously bears with them and heals them. Wherever he goes, it says, people are bringing out, verse 56, in villages, cities, or countryside. They laid the sick in the marketplaces and implored him that they might touch even the fringe of his garment, and as many as touched it were made well. There is a passion, a desire for the Savior's power that permeates these scenes. And what we see here is the goodness and the mercy of God. Though Jesus didn't come primarily to heal, oh, he was delighted to show compassion and care for people. He sends us into the world to do the same. The, the, the premise of all these pictures is that genuine faith produces confident expectation of God's power. And brothers and sisters, this isn't just wishful thinking. This isn't just something that we read about in the Bible that doesn't apply to our lives. Wherever you find yourself this morning, whatever the storms, wherever the headwind lies for you, there is a provision here in God for you. I read a wonderful account this past week of a man named George Mueller. Mr. Mueller was well known in 1800s England for his exceedingly great trust in God. 
and the generosity that resulted from that. This man, over the course of his ministry, gave away, raised $200 million in today's dollars to care for the poor. He was accused of raising the poor above their natural station in life. He gave away one and a half million Bibles. He cared for over 10,000 orphans and educated 120,000 children. So this is a man with some degree of responsibility. This is a man who needed to trust for provision. And to to read the account of his life is is a textbook in, in, in faith, in trusting God's provision. And at one point he says the following. I cannot tell you how happy this service in which I am engaged makes me. Instead of my being the anxious, careworn man so many persons think me to be, I have no anxieties and no cares at all. How many of you can say that? Let's all agree with that. I have no anxieties and no cares at all. Faith in God leads me to to roll my burdens, all my burdens, upon God. Not only burdens concerning money, but burdens concerning everything. For hundreds are my necessities besides those connected with money. In every way, I find God to be my helper, even as I trust him for everything and pray to him in childlike simplicity about everything. I have found invariably during my long life as a believer that if I only believed, I was sure to get in God's time the thing I asked for. I have found that if only I believed, I was sure to get in God's time the thing I asked for. Brothers and sisters, that's not pie in the sky. That's not unreachable. That's not superhuman. That's normal biblical faith. And what I want to point you to this morning is not Mr. Mueller, but the Savior. What I want to remind you of is the three pictures that we've painted, that Mark has painted for us the care that we see in the shepherd's prayer, the deliverance we see in the shepherd's glory, and the provision that we see in the Savior's compassion. He is eager to pray pray for us. He is eager to appear, to be near to us. And he is eager to give. That's who he is. It's the very nature of your God. And so I want to ask you this morning, do you have faith to trust him for a confident expectation of his power? Do you see how he is glorious? How he's given himself for you? And he's shown us that most preeminently in hanging upon the cross. For it was there that he took 
our sin upon himself. It was there that he gave the greatest gift of all. If we have any question about God's willingness to give and his commitment to meet our greatest need, we need only look to the cross and there to see our Savior hanging for us between heaven and earth, giving his life as a ransom for you and for me. I want to take a few moments right now to just ponder that. The gift that he gave, the provision that he made, the care that he demonstrated in his prayer, the deliverance in his glory and the provision in his compassion. I want us to consider those great needs, the headwind that we came in feeling. And before we go long farther, I want us just to be able to exchange our troubles for his provision, our hurts for his healing, and our need for his abundance. Let's take a few moments to just do business with God.